Good afternoon and good evening to everyone. My name is Dave Frankowski and I'll be your moderator for today's class. And welcome to another lecture given by the Oceanside California class. This is a school and not a church. Neither are we affiliated with any religious organization. This school is a nonprofit, non-denominational, religious and scientific research organization dedicated to showing proof of the existence of Yahweh our Elohim and the operation of his eternal purpose, pattern and plan operating throughout eternity to this present day. This school was established as a result of a divine vision and revelation given unto our founder, Dr. Henry Clifford Kinley in the state of Ohio in the year of 1931. We were incorporated in the state of California in the year of 1958. And we hold classes in the United States and in various other countries. The Oceanside class was established in 1994. At this time, I'd like to introduce to you the Dean of the Oceanside class, Dr. Dennis Volpe, and the President, Dr. Carl Emler. Now in this school, we use the true, correct, and original name and title for the Father, the Word or Son, and the Holy Spirit, which are contained in the original Hebrew text. The correct name for our Heavenly Father is Yahweh. It has been improperly substituted by Lord. The correct title for the word or son is Elohim. It has been improperly substituted by God. And the correct name of the Holy Spirit manifested in or out of a physical body is Yahshua. It has been erroneously substituted by Jesus Christ. Lord and God are titles. They are not names. The Apostle Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, tells us in 1 Corinthians 8 and 5 that there are Lord's many and there are God's many. But we now know that each Lord must have a name and each God must have a name also. Elohim is a title, but unlike the titles of Lord and God, Elohim is a divine title. It's a divine title because it's the title that our creator has chosen for himself. Jesus is a name, but it is an erroneous name. And a minor investigation on your part into a good dictionary or encyclopedia would prove that neither the Hebrew, the Greek, nor the Latin languages have any letters or characters in their alphabet that would produce the sound that's made by the letter J. Neither was there a letter J in our own English language until some 1400 years after the death of the Messiah, which would make such names as Jesus and Jehovah impossible renderings for the true name of our Father and his Son. Christ is a title just like Lord and God. Yahweh is pure spirit, and in this state, he is incomprehensible and inscrutable. He is the ultimate source, substance, the limits, and the bounds of everything that exists. We have Yahweh in his pure spirit state, symbolized on this chart as a cloud. Yahweh is not a cloud. He merely chose a cloud because a cloud has no particular or descriptive shape and form. 
And we've drawn this cloud to extend all around the edges of this chart to show that everything on the chart is within the cloud. In like manner, everything in the universe abides within the pure spirit state of Yahweh. Yahweh knowing that man could not perceive of him in his pure spirit state, took on shape and took on form right within himself as Yahweh Elohim. This is the word or son, a super incorporeal being that is having the shape and form of a man, but without flesh and blood. This form can only be seen in divine visions and understood in divine revelations. Later on, this self-same spirit manifested himself in a physical body, and he walked the earth plane as Yahshua the Messiah, who the whole world calls Jesus Christ. Now there's only one name given unto salvation, and we must know that name. So the simple yet intelligent question that we should ask ourselves is, what did they call the Savior when he walked the earth plane? And a further understanding of this name and title may be had by reading the preface to the Holy Name Bible. Also in this school, we teach by the divine pattern of the universe. It's the divine pattern because it's Yahweh's pattern. After Yahweh led the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, he called Moses on top of Mount Sinai. And he showed him this threefold tabernacle pattern in a vision. Later on, Yahweh instructed Moses to build one in the wilderness of Sinai, exactly like the one he had seen in his vision on the mount. The tabernacle pattern is a threefold pattern consisting of a most holy place, a holy place, and a court roundabout. These three compartments make up the one tabernacle pattern. In this school, we show proof that everything in the universe is made and it operates according to the structure and the function of this threefold tabernacle pattern, and that absolutely nothing escapes the pattern. The school has 10 primary constitutional objectives and aims, and they are as follows. One, to help you find and know Yahweh our Elohim as he really is and actually exists. Two, to form a nucleus of universal brotherhood of humanity in Yahshua the Messiah, without distinction of race, nationality, creed, sex, caste, or color. Three, to investigate the unexplained spirit law, or so-called law of nature, and the powers latent in man. Four, to encourage and promote the study of the scriptures, comparative religions, psychology, philosophy, modern, practical, and occult science. Five, to extirpate current superstition, skepticism, and ignorance. Six, to learn, know, and understand the operation of Yahweh's eternal purpose through the dispensations and ages. Seven, to discern and avoid being deceived by Lucifer, the serpent, the devil, the dragon or Satan and his demons operating the mystery of iniquity on earth through the dispensations of time. Eight, to earnestly contend for the common salvation and faith 
which was once delivered unto the sons or children of Yahweh. Nine, to make known that Yahweh from the beginning ordained. There is no other name given among men whereby a man can be saved, saving the name of Yahshua the Messiah. And ten, to inherit eternal life now in the kingdom of Yahshua the Messiah with the hope of immortal glorification in the new earth state. Our watchword is peace, and our slogan is speak the truth. We'll begin this afternoon with a prayer by Dr. Frank DeMassey from our Syracuse class, and we'll have a scripture read, which will be John, the eighth chapter, and that'll be read by Dr. Gail Josephson from our Green Bay class. Good afternoon and good evening. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Okay, can we please all bow our hearts and minds? And let's try and get all the thoughts of the flesh out of our heads and concentrate on our creator for the next two hours. Allow each of us to realize, especially these next two days coming, how that Yahshua has, has bestowed the grace upon us and opened our eyes that we're not deceived like the world is, thinking that it's the Messiah's birthday and consumed in all sorts of pagan rituals. But he saw fit, each and every one of us, that he pulled us out of that and he opened our eyes to it. He's allowed us, allowed that mystery of iniquity to be exposed. And anytime that mystery of iniquity is exposed, it's less opportunity we have to be deceived and we should be thankful. Allow us to, to always realize that we should always love the truth and always try to hold one another's arms up and appreciate every moment that we have. Um, we say this in Yahshua's name, and I'll say hallelujah. 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 I'll be reading the scripture out of the Holy Name Bible, containing the Holy Name version of the Old and New Testaments, critically compared with ancient authorities and various manuscripts, revised by A.B. Trena of the Scripture Research Association. John chapter 8. Yahshua went on to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Rabbi, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Yahshua stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him be the first to cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their, their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Yahshua was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. 
when Yahshua had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, sir. And Yahshua said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Then Yahshua again, then spake Yahshua again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. The Pharisees therefore said unto him, Thou bearest record of thyself. Thy record is not true. Yahshua answered and said unto them, Though I bear record of myself, yet my record is true. For I know whence I came and whither I go. But you cannot tell whence I came and whither I go. Ye judge after the flesh. I judge no man. And yet if I judge, my judgment is true, for I, I am not alone, but I am the Father that sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one that bears witness of myself, and the Father that sent me bears witness of me. Then said they unto him, Where is thy father? Yahshua answered, Ye neither know me nor my father. If you had known me, you should have known my father also. These words beg Yahshua in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no man laid hands on him, and yet his for his hour was not yet come. Then said Yahshua again unto them, I go my way, and you shall seek me, and shall die in your sins. Whither I go, you cannot come. Then said the Jews, Will he kill himself? Because he saith, Whither I go, you, you cannot come. And he said unto them, You are from beneath. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I said therefore unto you that you shall die in your sins. For if ye believe not that I am he, you shall die in your sins. Then said they unto him, Who art thou? And Yahshua saith unto them, even the same that I said unto you from the beginning. I have many things to say and to judge of you, but he that sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I have heard from him. They understood not that he spake to them of the Father. Then said Yahshua unto them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall ye know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things, and he that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. As he spake these words, many believed on him. Then said Yahshua to those Jews which believed on him, If you continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We be Abraham's seed. And were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Yahshua answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the slave of sin. And the slave abides not in the house forever, but the son abideth forever. If the son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's seed, but ye seek to kill me because my word hath no place in you. I speak that which I have seen with my father, and ye do that which you have seen with your father. 
They answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Yahshua said unto them, if you were Abraham's children, you would, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man that hath told you the truth, which I have heard of Yahweh. This did not Abraham. Ye do the deeds of your father. Then said they to him, we be not born of fornication. We have one father, even Elohim. Yeshua said unto them, if Elohim were your father, you would, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from him. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Is it because you cannot hear my word? You are of your father, the adversary, and the lusts of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. And because I tell you the truth, you believe me not. Which of you convicted me of sin? And if I say the truth, why do you not believe me? He that is of Yahweh hears the words of Yahweh. You hear them not, because you are not of Yahweh. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, Say we not well that thou art a Samaritan and hast a demon? Yeshua answered, I have not a demon, but I honor my father, and you do dishonor me. And I seek my, not mine own glory. There is one that sees and judges. Verily, verily, I say unto you, if a man keeps, keep my saying, he shall never see death. Then said the Jews unto him, Now we know that thou hast a demon. Abraham is dead, and the prophets, and thou sayest, If a man keep my saying, he shall never taste of death. Art thou greater than our father Abraham, which is dead, and the prophets are dead? Whom makest thou thyself? Yeshua answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father that honors me, of whom you say that he is your Elohim. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I were to say I know him not, I would be a liar like unto you. But I know him and keep his saying. Your father Abraham prayed to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Yeshua said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. Then took they up stones to cast at him. But Yeshua hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Thank you, Dr. Josephson and Dr. Damasi. Our scripture readers this afternoon will be Dr. Linda Volpe from our Oceanside class and Dr. Sharon Welch from our Syracuse class. We'll have a two-speaker format this afternoon, each speaker getting approximately half of the class. And our first speaker this afternoon will be the dean of our Lansing class, Dr. Terry Welch. Well, good evening, brethren. Can you hear me well? We can. Yes, we All can. Right. Well, marvelous. Well, praise Yashua. So you guys don't give a guy a break, do you? <laughs> 
but I appreciate it. Uh, always enjoy fellowshipping with the brethren. And uh, uh, I know everybody is uh, all concerned about Christmas today and this year and this time of year and so forth. I will tell you that personally, I never have been terribly affected by Christmas. Um, primarily, probably, because I was raised Jehovah's Witness from the time that I was very young. And of course, Jehovah's Witnesses do not celebrate Christmas or Easter or any of those holidays. And um, so I never really got in the habit of it as a child and didn't get all those emotional attachments. And it also did not uh, come up under the uh, false notions that Christmas was, was the uh, birthday of Jesus or any of that kind of thing. And um, so, but it's very interesting to look at the origins and the background of the customs, the traditions that are associated with Christmas and Easter. And those are the two biggest holidays in Christianity and they are connected. But their original connection was with pagan worship, the worship of the sun, the moon and the stars and the earth related to that. And uh, it goes back thousands of years. Um, and the, the uh, Israelites, uh, of course, faced the pagan worship when they went into the promised land. And as I think everybody here knows, they were always being bombarded with the worship of the various different Baal gods and the Molech gods, um, which are, uh, or I mean Ashtoreth, I'm sorry, Baal and Ashtoreth, which were the male and female fertility gods that were considered primary forces the, by the pagans um, that they petitioned for being fruitful and multiplying. And of course, Yahweh told Adam and he told Noah afterwards uh, to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, subdue it and rule over it. And uh, he gave them blessings and promises Israel um, when they went into the promised land and he said if they would obey him, he would make them fruitful and he would multiply their seed and the seed of all their cattle and the of their crops and so forth. And uh, that would be dependent upon them being faithful to Yahweh, in other words, worshiping him and him only not the gods of the pagans. And uh, of course, Israel succumbed to the habits, the customs, the influence 
of the pagan nations that were around them, and they worshiped Baal and Ashtoreth. Um, and, you know, we could get all the scriptures connected with this. I, I won't do that right now. But the ideas behind some of these pagan worship services are things that uh, is worth looking into because I think it helps us to understand uh, um, how Satan has caused man to deviate uh, from the worship of Yahweh, how, how he has misdirected mankind, and it gives you some way of discerning and avoiding being deceived by Satan to understand his MO, his methods of operation, his typical way of doing things. And uh, uh, so I'm, I'm going to give you just quick background on some of that that I recall. Um, we've had lectures in Lansing. Um, actually, it's gotten to the point where we don't have Christmas lectures anymore, <laughs> unless I ask somebody to do it. Um, because it's kind of old hat for most of the folks here. Um, and uh, however, uh, Susan Craig in our class for years did a very, very nice job because she would uh, do some research and add on to the information that she had previously collected and then try to... Um, uh, organize it and present it in a way that was clear and um, helpful because it was relevant uh, and, and relatable. People could relate to what was going on. But uh, one of the biggest things that has always stuck with me, and I, and I believe, I'm going to say I believe that I first read this in a book that Dr. Kinley referenced. Um, I'm trying to think of the name of the book right now. Um, I think it was Hislop's book, um, The Two Babylons. And uh, I believe it was there. And then maybe some things that were related with that. Uh, I'm sorry, it's been so many years since I've even looked up any of this stuff. I don't recall all the details of where it is and what the details are. Everybody should look these things up. But what shocked me was the relationship between Easter and Christmas and the pagan worship uh, that had gone on. And um, I had grown up knowing that Christmas and Easter weren't in the Bible and they weren't correct. What I didn't understand was how those things became uh, to, 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 as such a fundamental aspect of pagan culture and pagan worship. Now, the word Easter uh, is related to the word Astarte, or Ashtoreth, which is the names of pagan 
uh, fertility gods, female. And, uh, um, you know, even the worship of Easter as it is today uses fertility symbols with bunnies that are prolific and Easter eggs. I, I still don't know how these bunnies manage to lay eggs, especially colored eggs. But all those things have a basis in pagan practices. And uh, I'll, let me just quickly kind of go over a couple of the details with this and then maybe proceed on to something else. And I may not even take the full time that I know you said be two speakers. I might end up being short tonight, which would be fine. I here to kind of enjoy anyway. But um, the pagans would use sex uh, in their worship services um, because the idea was fertility. The idea was being fruitful. And it was not just fruitfulness of their own people but the fruitfulness of their cattle and their uh, uh, crops and everything. And of course, the springtime of the year is the time of the year when you start seeing this resurgence of life, a resurrection. And of course, it was in the uh, uh, spring, Abib or April, uh, that Yahshua was crucified, buried, and resurrected. And the, um, uh, th this has been then sold in Christianity, his resurrection, as being related to the um, uh, Easter customs. But thousands of years before Yahshua was crucified, buried, and resurrected, Easter, Ashtarte, Ashtoreth, was worshiped and it was using sexual and fertility um, rituals. You read in the Bible about what Yahweh called the groves. Anytime you read about the groves in the Bible, it's referring to the places among the, the trees out in nature, as we would call it, that were cleared, uh, a clearing, an area for meeting. And they were cleared except for sometimes a tree in the midst of the grove and very often an altar or a rock of some kind used in their ritual worship. And uh, even the uh, shape of these groves was intended to show the idea of the uh, vaginal orifice with a penis. And it was, was literally part of what they were symbolizing on earth. And they would have uh, ritual sex on the altars in these places 
and it was especially uh, important at certain times of the year because what they were trying to do is what people call sympathetic magic. That's a modern term for the idea that what they were doing was trying to literally seduce the gods of the heavens by enacting sexual rituals on the earth and enticing the sun, the moon, and the stars, the, the powers or the gods of heaven to have intercourse with mother earth and to cause the mother to bring forth fruit uh, for those people. And they were enacting these rituals and they would sacrifice to these gods in, uh, in various different ways. Now, you read in the Bible about even the Israelite kings, many of them, causing their children to, quote, pass through the fire or pass through the fire unto Molech, which was a kind of a, I, I forget exactly who, it was a somewhat different cultures or, or different societies version of the Baal gods. And what they would do would be literally take usually a firstborn child or a holy child, and I'll describe what that means in a minute, would they would take a holy child and sacrifice that child unto their pagan god with the idea of enticing or seducing that pagan god into blessing their whole society with life, with fertility. Now, a holy child was a uh, child that was usually considered less than a year old, or I will say approximately one year old, but it couldn't be, you know, a real old child. They had to be very young. And, um, their blood, therefore, was considered pure, and that's what they called innocent blood. And what they would do would be to shed innocent blood in seducing these pagan gods or powers of the heavens, the sun, the moon, and the stars, which, by the way, were actually demons that probably appeared in visions to these people and the, the people considered them to be lights, angels. Satan can transform himself to appear as an angel of light. And uh, that's in the Bible. And these demons then would uh, apparently appear uh, to people and in exchange for being worshiped would then give to these people certain um, knowledge, which to them was like giving them technology in order to live 
a better life in this physical world. They, they were giving them knowledge that would bless those people with the ability to live um, a better physical life. And um, there's certain reason to believe that when you read back in Genesis, and I try and remember which chapter it is, I could go back and get this. Like I say, it's been years since I've gone back and done a detailed review of these things. But I'm going to say, I think it's in chapter five, for, or, or maybe it's later, where it talks about some of the different descendants um, that were in the uh, so-called unrighteous lineage. It refers to certain ones as those that had specific artisan skills. They would be artisans of uh, music with uh, the horns and the other kinds of things. Others would uh, have specific artisan skills that were um, with construction and uh, other skills that they may have acquired actually from demons. And they were represented among the culture uh, as being those gods that they looked at the heavens or the skies and equated with specific stars. And this is basically the same concept as astrology and how people will look at the stars and will literally see formations of those stars which are named after and resemble formations of certain people and animals and events that uh, were reputed in their legends to go along with these uh, people in the uh, what was similar to astrology today, but was used by those people for worshiping these gods so the gods would bless them. Anyway, you get to the spring festivals, um, which was around Easter time. They were worshiping Ashtoreth, Astarte, and this was the female goddess. And what would happen is that they would have temple prostitutes um, and they would have both male and female prostitutes in their temples and in their groves. And this is part of the way that the uh, uh, cult leaders, the church leaders of that pagan system would get money. And these prostitutes were cons not considered low-life streetwalkers. These were considered very high class, special, dedicated uh, individuals that were like priests are considered today. And people, especially people of wealth, would then pay very good money to have sex, ritual sex, with these temple prostitutes. And of course, in many cases, people would get pregnant. 
And when I say people, yes, I mean women. Men did not get pregnant and it, it, it was women and men, right? But women would get pregnant and this would occur around the time of Easter. Well, when is an Easter conception child going to be born? The answer is around Christmas. And because nine months gestation. And so along with the worship of Ashtoreth and the, the uh, uh, sexual rituals in the spring, there would be the children that were born and they were considered holy children and they were uh, going to be born around the winter solstice, which is, you know, December 21st, 22nd, um, and depending on where it is, even the 25th of, the, uh, of December, of what we now call December, but around the time of the winter solstice, and they were considered children of the gods, or a boy that was born around that time, especially from a, 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 a special temple prostitute, again, not somebody considered a lowlife at all. This was considered a son of God. The, the boy that was born, the baby boy would be considered a son of God, born around Christmas time. And then about three months later, which would be at the time of the next Easter, that would be a very, very young child with innocent blood. And those babies would then be ritually sacrificed. Uh, and, and their blood would be used in the rituals, very similar to the way the blood of animals was often used to be sprinkled on something for symbolic purification of that thing. Moses had to sprinkle the tabernacle with water and scarlet wool, scarlet because it was with blood, and all things are purged with blood. And this was in the law, but the pagans would use the blood of these uh, uh, sacred children in that were conceived for the purpose of sacrifice to the pagan gods. And this is also apparently how the a concept of dying Easter eggs occurred, that they would literally use the blood of these children to uh, paint or dye certain things and 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 this so all these different customs and traditions that you see connected with Easter and with Christmas have an origin in the ancient pagan festivals uh, which were celebrating and worshiping the stars of the heaven. And this is why Yahweh told them, do not do the way the pagans do. Do not worship the stars of the heaven and, and, and the, the sun, the moon, and the stars. And if anybody does it, Yahweh said, you just kill them. Okay. 
And nevertheless, they would do this. And it was a, 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 a very common kind of a thing among the pagans. Now, just as with any large dispersed group of people, you find different versions, different variations of uh, rituals that would take place. But that really always struck me so much. You conceive these children at Easter so that they're born at Christmas, symbolize the sun god, the sun reborn in that child. That's when the solstice occurs, the sun starts to come back. And then use the blood of that child in sacrifice, uh, basically at the child's uh, uh, third month of life, a year from his conception. And this was uh, the customs of the pagans where you had them sacrifice their children to Molech and had them pass through the fire and all the different kinds of things you read about in the Bible. So some of the, to me, some of the most disgusting, reprehensible kinds of worship that you could possibly conceive of was done and this is all the worship of Satan and those demons that were cast out of heaven and would appear to people and cause them for their own ideas of selfish and social benefit uh, to do these evil practices in order to be blessed by their gods. So that's some things to look at and think about. Uh, a lot of times when people read about the history, and you can do this, you can read about the history, you can find all kinds of Google things uh, and, and YouTube about the history of the pagan uh, uh, Christmas worship and so forth. Um, what they don't do is connect Easter and Christmas together with the way the pagans actually did their ritual worship of the sun, the moon, and the stars. And, and, and people end up getting the idea that those ancient people were just superstitious, stupid people that nobody today would ever even think of doing those kinds of things like those stupid people that had those idols back there. And they were no more stupid than anybody else, but they had different concepts attached to what was going on. And they really thought that they were connecting with gods or powers that would bless them. And uh, I'm sure in some cases they did get some blessings because these demons would definitely come and give them what today you would call technology or would give them visions of how to do certain things that would help them personally and in their society to be fruitful and to flourish. Um, so anyway, that's a little bit of background on that. It, it, you know, you can do your own research on this. Um, just as a quick note, 
uh, Lenore Allen had on her um, Honest Hearted Truth Seekers uh, class today, a YouTube uh, video that was, I think it was called The Pagan Origins of Christmas, something like that. And it was a, a pretty well put together history of uh, the uh, European uh, pagans that uh, I think probably from around the fifth century, uh, four or 500 years after Yahshua's physical uh, birth, life, ministry, death, burial, resurrection, um, and followed some of their things down and how it developed and changed in different European um, countries and cultures, and then came to the United States and some of the changes that resulted in the very, very common current ways that Christmas is worshiped. And it was kind of interesting because you can see that there was a lot of changes that took place and they did involve um, uh, very, uh, I'll say controversial, even at that time, there was not universal acceptance, so it was controversial, of the different um, ways in which Christmas was worshiped. So I'll leave that part there. Um, that's something that you can, all of you can look at, you can get some other details. Um, uh, like I said, uh, Susan Craig used to have very good documentation on a lot of these things. Somewhere in my files, I probably got some of that. Um, and, I, and, and there's some reference to some of these things, even back in books like Alexander Hislop's book, long time ago, The Two Babylons, and other things. But every single one of those pagan worships were there to take credit away from Yahweh and from Yahshua, to uh, get the, the glory and honor away from him and prevent mankind from really recognizing the true Elohim or source of power and all blessing that there really is. Um, and Yahshua was definitely not born anywhere near Christmas time. And as I think most of the people here realize, he was born on uh, Sivan the 6th, or what we would call June the 6th on our current calendar. Um, and that was in fulfillment of the way Yahweh had set some things up. It fulfilled specifically the speaking down of the law and giving of the Old Testament or Old Covenant, because Yahshua was universal spirit law embodied, and he came down from heaven and was embodied in earth uh, in that physical body, 
when he was born on June 6th. And that was the date that was uh, the day Yahweh spoke the law down from the top of Mount Sinai, which was a symbol of heaven, and made that covenant with Israel uh, back there in the institution of the Old Testament or Old Covenant. And Yahshua came on that same date to fulfill the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. And then after he physically fulfilled it, he, as the Holy Spirit, again came down from heaven and was embodied in the apostles and those that received the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem on the day that we call Pentecost, which was, and that's the Greek term for the annual um, holy day, not holiday, but holy day, or a feast day, a convocation of Yahweh that was with Israel, which was the feast of the first fruits of the wheat harvest. And that would be on June the 6th. And every year after Yahweh spoke that law down on Sivan or June 6th, um, they would have a holy convocation that means they would be called together or convoked together. Uh, and that was one of the three times of the year that Yahweh said that all their men had to come together and worship Yahweh in specific ways. And this became in the uh, Greek form called the day of Pentecost. And it's very, very commonly known as Pentecost, but that Pentecost, where they received the Holy Spirit, was um, a, a, um, one of the annual convocations or holy days that Yahweh made with Israel. Now, Yahweh had seven <coughs> convocations or holy days with Israel that he set up to show his purpose. <coughs> And um, Christmas and Easter were not among them at all. But there were three convocations or three, uh, I'll say three feasts unto Yahweh. One that was related to their convocation, their coming together at the beginning of the springtime. That would be around the time of their barley harvest which was in our April or the month Abib, also called Nisan, okay? And this was uh, set up in a, um, an annual memorial of how the children of Israel would come out of the land of Egypt. And you read about it in the 12th chapter of the book of Exodus, um, and I guess I might as well ask you to get that, if you would. And then uh, over in Leviticus 20, I think it's 26 or 27. Um, and then we'll just read just a taste here. Um, and then uh, Exodus 12 and Exodus 13. I may have to look for where it is unless you know exactly 
where we're talking. Yes. But it's where he, where he says, you keep this feast as a memorial throughout your generations. I think that's in Exodus 12. If you help me out with it. Yeah, I'm looking. Okay. I'm going to say... Um, oh, I, okay. Well, it's um, Exodus 12 and 14. Thank you. And this day shall be unto you for a memorial, and ye shall keep it a feast to Yahweh throughout your generations. Ye shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. Great. Now, there's actually three feasts connected with the time period. And um, uh, the time period is actually an entire week. Um, in fact, read on from where you're at. The next, I think the next verse. Seven days shall ye eat unleavened bread. Even the first day ye shall put away leaven out of your houses. For whosoever eateth leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that soul, soul, that soul shall be cut off from Israel. Great. Continue, please. And in the first day, there shall be a holy convocation. And in the seventh day, there shall be a holy convocation to you. No manner of work shall be done in them, save that which every man must eat, that only may be done by you. Good. All right. Go ahead. And ye shall observe the feast of the unleavened bread, for in this very same day have I brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, shall ye observe this day in your generations by an ordinance forever. Right. Every year. All right. Go ahead, please. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month at evening, ye shall eat unleavened bread until the 1 and 20th day of the month at evening. Okay, so that's the entire week. Now, that's in April or Abib. And on that uh, first day of that week, that's going to be, it says right there, the 14th day of the month. And that day where they start eating unleavened bread is going to be the day that is also called the Feast of the Passover. And that Feast of the Passover is going to include the uh, the main point is the Passover lamb, which represents Yahshua, the lamb of Yahweh that takes away the sin of the world. But they're going to continue to eat unleavened bread or bread that has not risen uh, after that. And then I'll show you what goes on a little bit later on. But uh, read on. I think there's a little bit more right there in that same couple of verses afterwards. 19. Seven days shall there be no leaven found in your houses. For whosoever eateth that which is leaven, even that soul shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he, had, whether he be a sojourner or born in the land. Ye shall eat nothing leavened. In all your habitations shall ye eat unleavened bread. Mm -hmm. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said unto them, draw out and take you a lamb according to your families and kill the Passover. Okay, so that's the Passover lamb, okay? And they're going to have to take the blood of the lamb and put it on the door of their houses and so forth. Now, and if you read back at the beginning of the chapter, I believe that's where it talks about um, this month shall be uh, the beginning of months. In other words, it would be the first 
uh, month of the year. And um, so it wasn't January. And I think if you go to the 13th chapter, very next chapter, I think. Um, uh, let's see, I thought it was the next chapter where is that the next chapter where it says this day came me out in a month, Abib? Yeah, that's April? 13 and 4. Thank you. This day came me out in the month, Abib. Right. Okay. So, uh, which roughly corresponds to our month of April. Now, Abib actually is a Hebrew word, and it is uh, in practice interpreted to mean. Um, well, it means ears or corns of grain, but it is in fact uh, became a practice among the um, Jewish rabbis and scholars to actually determine whether the month Abib, how do I say this? Okay. All right, let me, I don't want to get off on a side point, but just this is a point of interest. I, I, there's 12 months in a normal year. However, uh, there was 354 total days in a Jewish year, 360 if it's a prophetic year, which would leave it several days short of your 365 and one quarter days of the full solar year. I hope all that makes sense, what I'm just saying. All right. And the Jews did not have a uh, month. Some months were 30 days. Some months were 31. And it would add up to 365 year, days a year. They didn't do it that way. It was 29 and a half days with the uh, evening of the one day and the morning of the next day conjoined and ended up being 354 days for a year, a civil year. Uh, Dr. Kinley covers this in the end of volume one in the textbook. Um, but that would leave them several days short of the 365 days. So what would happen is this, they would uh, have one year uh, where they'd only have 354 days in that year, and then they'd have maybe one more year where it's 354 days, and now there's something like, uh, what, 20 days or 22 days short of uh, uh, having their year correspond with the way the sun is, with the solar year of 365 days. And so instead of having a leap year with, like, like we have 30 days, 31 days, and then we have a leap year every four years where we add one day to, course, to make our, our years correspond with the solar year, the sun. But they didn't do it that way. <clears throat> they would fall several days short after a year or two of only 354 days. And then they would have a whole extra month, not one extra day every four years like we do at the end of February. They would have an entire extra month, which would be the Adar two. They would have Adar or, or Vedar um, as their 12th month, but 
then every so many years, they would interpose a 13th month, an entire month, in which was again a 29 and a half day period where they would add that month in order to make their calendar, um, their so-called lunar calendar, correspond more or less with the solar uh, calendar or solar cycle. And now that means some years they would have 13 months, some years they'd have 12 months. Well, the question is, how were they supposed to determine which years had 13 months and which years had 12 months, okay? And it goes back to this very thing of the first month being Abib, which referred to the full head of grain of barley. In other words, when the barley got ripe enough and heavy enough and big enough, to bend the head over on the stalk or on the, the shaft uh, of barley, then the barley was considered to be abib. But if it was not developed enough to bend the shaft over, it was not considered to be abib. And so what their custom ended up being was that they would look at the, and this of course was much later on, they would look at the barley, the way I remember hearing about this, the barley on a particular place, I'm trying to remember where it was, one specific area in the promised land um, on one of the hills there, but the priest was supposed to go look at the barley and keep track of what day it bent over. And then when uh, the first sliver of the new moon would appear, after the barley was a beeb, the priest would declare that month to be a beeb. Otherwise, that month was not considered to be a beeb, it was Vedar two. It was the 13th month. So that's how they would reconcile this. It was agriculturally as well as astronomically uh, timed. They would agriculturally, meaning having to do with the crops, with the barley, and astronomically having to do with being the first sliver of the new moon. And they would have- Five minutes, to Dr. Welch, five minutes, please. Oh, okay, thank you, thank you. I burned up that time more than I expected. All right. So anyway, they figured that that would be Abib. Now, in the month of Abib, they would have uh, the men come together or be convoked for a week. And the first day of the week would be the Passover. And they would have to have the Passover lamb. And uh, I won't have time to get this all read. Um, <laughs> I guess I burned up the time. Um, but if you go to Leviticus 20, uh, I think it's, yeah, it's Leviticus 20, is it 25 or 26? Anyway, yeah, it's 25, I think. Anyway, it doesn't matter. If you go over there to Leviticus 25 or 26, he talks about these seven uh, feasts of Yahweh. 
The first three were in April or Abib, and April the 14th would be Passover. The next day, the 15th, would be what they called the first or the high day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, the entire week was considered Passover or Unleavened Bread, but that very next day, the day called the 15th, was specifically the uh, day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then on the following day, uh, which would be the 16th, the priest would uh, take a shot of the first fruits of the barley harvest and lift it up and wave it before Yahweh. Um, and that would be called the Feast of the First Fruits. So this corresponds perfectly to the days of Yahshua's death, his burial, and his resurrection. Abib 14, 15, and 16. And on the 14th, the Passover, the Passover lamb was killed. Yahshua died and in, in, in corresponding to that day. Then he was buried or was not risen on the 15th, which corresponded to the unleavened bread, that feast where the bread was not risen. And then the following day when the priest would raise up the first fruits of the barley harvest was prefiguring Yahshua being raised from the dead the third day. Now then you would count 50 days from that day to the day that we commonly call Pentecost, which has to do with that 50 days. And since that was the 16th day in Abib, and you're doing 30 days in the month there, you are then going to go to June the 6th or Sivan the 6th as being the uh, um, uh, first fruits of the wheat harvest. That is the same as Pentecost. That's the day. Yahshua spoke down the law. That's the day Yahshua came down from heaven and embodied in that body that we, this, this, the birthday of Yahshua. And that's the day that uh, the new covenant was born or the Holy Spirit was born into the apostles on the day of Pentecost. And Yahshua is fulfilling all these things. Then at the end of the year, and I'll finish with this, in what we would call October, or what they would call Tishrei, there would be three main feast days, and they would be the first day of Tishrei, the Feast of Trumpets, the 10th day would be the Day of Atonement, and then um, the 15th day, which would go for an entire week, it's another festival, <coughs> would be the Feast of the Ingathering, or the Feast of Tabernacles. And this corresponds with Yahweh's purpose, because at the end, and that goes through a seven-month period. I don't have time to describe the whole thing, obviously, but that seven months corresponds with the seven dispensations, the seven ages, the entire seven in Yahweh's cycle, ending up with the harvest uh, of Yahweh's uh, uh, true flock. Um, the souls from the earth being gathered together with those angels that are still in heaven 
and being in the one body of Yahshua at his universal revelation, which corresponds with the Day of Atonement, and then going on to live in uh, glorified spiritual bodies throughout all eternity, um, which was prefigured in their Feast of Tabernacles uh, at the end of the year. All right, so I know I probably came to the end of the five minutes. Um, and that was real fast at the end, but I hope that's of some value. Christmas and Easter got nothing to do with any of Yahweh's convocations. Thank you. I'm done. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Welsh. And our next speaker this afternoon will be the Dean of our Oceanside class, Dr. Dennis Volpe. I want to say good evening to everyone, and before I start into what I have on my mind, I would like to get some feedback uh, from the people on YouTube as to whether uh, my speaking is clear and there is no sound uh, coming through that is uh, disruptive. If somebody could please put in the chat whether what they're hearing is clear. It's clear. It is. Okay. I've had some, some problems with my microphone and I want to make sure that I've got it fixed. Okay. I want to welcome everybody here tonight. It's obvious we have quite a bit of uh, brethren gathered tonight. It's obvious that everybody recognizes, of course, the importance of hearing the truth about Yahweh and his purpose and plan. Now, I've got several things that I'd like to share with you that I think uh, I want to set this up so that it makes some sense. Now, this feast day of Christmas, every year we go into various aspects. Uh, the speakers do a great job breaking down the origins of some of these practices, these customs. I want to talk about why this is important and why Yahweh is not pleased with the things that are uh, practiced by the people in the world. Now, first thing, I'm going to take you right back to the book of Exodus. I want to go back to Exodus, the 20th chapter. And let me get in there with you also. Uh, I believe it's verse, let's try verse 6 and 7. This is the chapter where the Ten Commandments are being stated. And I want to make, I want to key in on one of the things that Yahweh says. So if you would please go ahead and read that for me. Exodus 20 and 6, you said? Start at six. And showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments, thou shalt not take the name of Yahweh thy Elohim in vain, for Yahweh will not hold him guiltless. I'm sorry. I made a mistake. Exodus 20 and 5. Okay, that's what I thought. Okay. Go pick it up at four, please. Uh, all right. Exodus 20 and 4, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above and that is in the earth beneath. All right. Now, in... All right. Now, listen, he does not want them to make a graven image. Mm -hmm. Now, of anything that is in heaven, or in other words, anything that is beyond the veil of the flesh. I'm going to put it that way for the time being. Now, I want to make a point here. The image that they would grave is derived from an imagination. 
And imagination, ladies and gentlemen, has the root word image and couched within it. So all of these so-called gods that people have worshipped down through antiquity, down through the various nations and cultures and whatnot, are the product of an imagination of a carnal mind. And these images that they have within their heart and mind has been, I'll use this term, subtly manipulated by the mystery of iniquity to try to cause them to do that which is not pleasing in Yahweh's eyesight. So when Yahweh the land of Egypt there and delivered them from that captivity, what you have to understand is that that deliverance was, uh, and the commandments that were given, they were worshiping idols previous to coming to Mount Sinai. And Yahweh's going to put a stop to that idolatry or that imagery that they had. Now, I want to make this point. I'm sure you're all already aware of it. All of these people are standing around Mount Sinai, and they have a carnal mind. Now, a carnal mind doesn't know a thing about the essence and reality of spirit. They do not know how Yahweh actually is and truthfully exists. Now, with that ignorance that is within the hearts and minds of the people, the devil is able to go in there and manipulate and give them an idea, an imagery, that appears to them to make sense or it, it seems logical or all those kind of things. And then they derive these images of these gods that they think have power over them. Keep reading. I want you to read those two verses that I uh, called for. Okay. Um, I'll pick up four again. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the waters under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, Yahweh thy Elohim, am a jealous El, visiting the iniquities of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Now listen, Yahweh is telling them that he's a jealous Elohim. And he's not going to tolerate it. Now, we all know that when Israel was delivered out of that land of Egypt and gathered around that mountain, that was a wedding. That was a marriage ceremony. Yahweh was committing himself to those people. And those people were his bride. And he refers to them in that capacity over in Jeremiah 31, 31, where he said, I was a good husband unto them. Now, that was his bride, and that bride, he's telling them, I don't want you worshiping, bowing down to, creating any other imagery of another deity. First of all, all of these deities don't actually exist, ladies and gentlemen. All the images, and Terry mentioned various gods that people were worshiping at various times, uh, during the course of the Bible there. None of those gods, none of those deities actually exist. They simply exist in the thoughts and in the uh, 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 depths of people's carnal minds that they imagine. Now, what Yahweh, first of all, I want to make this clear. When Yahweh marries Israel, what he wants is Israel to have him in their heart and mind. Not, in other words, 
that they recognize and remember the words that he spoke to them on top of Mount Sinai and that they love him. Now, I want to go over for just a second here to Deuteronomy now. Uh, let's go to Deuteronomy. Uh, let's go to Deuteronomy. Let's go to Deuteronomy 6.24 to start with. Then I want to go to Deuteronomy the 7th chapter. Deuteronomy 6.24. And Yahweh commanded us to do all of these statutes, to fear Yahweh our Elohim for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as it is at this day. All right. And it's all right. Now, Yahweh, this is them standing around the mountain. Okay, and it and it would be their righteousness to observe to do everything that he said. Now let's go to the seventh chapter, starting at one. When Yahweh thy Elohim shall bring thee into the land where thou goest to possess it, and hath cast out many nations before thee, the Hittites, the Gergesites, the Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than thou. And when Yahweh thy Elohim shall deliver them before thee, thou shalt smite them and utterly destroy them, and thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor show mercy unto them. Now many people have referred to so-called the God of the Old Testament as being a different God than the God of the New Testament. I've heard Christians talk about this. They believe that the God of the Old Testament is not the God they're worshiping under the New Testament. What they think is that when Yahweh sent Israel in there and told them to utterly destroy and 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 just, uh, kill every man, woman, and child, that their God would not do something like that. This is the thoughts of these people. And they have no idea why Yahweh would command them not to have any mercy when they went in there to destroy those Jebusites and all the rest of that he was talking about there. Now keep reading. Neither shalt thou make marriages with them. Thy daughter, thy daughter thou shalt not give unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son. Read. For they will turn away thy son from following me, that they may serve other Here gods. Here it is. What the reason why he wanted them eradicated is because they would turn the people to the imaginations of these other gods and then they would not regard what Yahweh commanded them from Mount Sinai. Keep reading. So will the anger of Yahweh be kindled against you and destroy thee suddenly? But thus shall ye deal with them. Ye shall destroy their altars, and break down their images, and cut down their idols, and burn their carved images with fire. All right. Okay. All right. Now listen. Here's what I'm trying to get you to see. Yahweh's after something here with these people, which we understand is going to carry over under the new covenant with us now. And we have to understand everything we watch back there is a... Uh, admonition to all of us and also a teaching for us to know what Yahweh's intent is for all things that he is doing back there. Now, what I want to make clear is this, that Yahweh's after the hearts and minds of those people from Mount Sinai there. And I want you to find there's a, there's a scripture in Deuteronomy where it says, now, what does Yahweh require of thee, O Israel? If somebody can find that for me. 
It's actually 10 and 12. All right. Of, okay. And All now, right. Israel, Go and ahead. now, Israel, what doth Yahweh thy Elohim require of thee? But to fear Yahweh thy Elohim, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, and to serve Yahweh thy Elohim with all thy heart and with all thy soul. This is what Yahweh's requiring, that they love him, that they serve him, that they honor him, that they respect him, that they be obedient to him. And so those are the things that Yahweh wanted those people to do with him back there that he required of them. Now, what we find out is that in Deuteronomy, Moses warns, and this is over around the 31st chapter of Deuteronomy, he warned them that after his death, that they would go into the land of Canaan and they would utterly corrupt themselves and start worshiping these idols and these gods up there in the land of Canaan. So what we find out when we read, go over to Jeremiah the 10th chapter now. I want to, I want to try to make this point clear, that at no time... Did Yahweh ever want them to practice anything that was uh, done to honor some pagan deity? So go ahead and read Jeremiah, the 10th chapter. Start reading there at the first verse, I guess. Yeah, one. Hear ye the word of Yahweh speaking unto you, O house of Israel. Thus saith Yahweh Elohim, Learn not the way of the heathen. Now he told them not to learn the way of the heathen. Now listen. Uh, skip right down. Hold your finger there and skip down to the last verse of that chapter. Okay. Pour out thy fury upon the heathen that know thee not, and upon the families that call not on thy name. For now, they have... Now, listen. We used to think that a heathen was anybody that wasn't a Christian. I know when I was raised a Catholic, we thought the heathens were people that did not know the God of the Bible. In other words, didn't worship the God of the Bible. What we've come to find out is every one of us, when we walked in the door, we were heathen. We didn't know the name of Yahweh. We didn't know how Yahweh actually was and actually existed. We were actually heathen under the guise of thinking that we were, you know, his people. Now, when he told them, learn not the way of the heathen, every custom that goes with Christmas was derived from a pagan worship of some deity that was an imagination. I have a book that is called Externals of the Roman Catholic Church, and it's imprimatur, it's written by a priest, where he explains that the customs, and he goes into each one of them, he shows how these customs came out of these pagan beliefs. And then he turns and says that even though they're pagan, they were beautiful customs, and therefore we use those in our uh, celebration of, of Christmas time. So in other words, they feel they have a right to disregard what Yahweh has said and just go and do whatever they feel like doing, whatever they like. And listen, every one of these customs have some sensuousness to them. And the devil recognizes that you are going to be, you're going to be drawn in by the, the, the sensuousness of a beautiful tree uh, being put upright, uh, 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 lights put around it, gold and, and silver on it, and then a lit star at the top or an angel at the top that's lit up, that that is very 
alluring to the person's senses. And here's what I hear people say. Well, we do it for the kids. We do it for the children. That's why we, we, we do these customs. We want our children uh, to enjoy Christmas and see these kind of things. Now, did you know back there under the law, Yahweh commanded Israel to teach the children his statutes, and he put the responsibility upon the parents to teach them what Yahweh it was acceptable to him and what was not acceptable to him. Now, none of us were ever told the truth. I know when I went to the Catholic Church, when I went to Catholic parochial school, I was never told that Jesus, we don't know when he was born. We don't really know if he was born on December 25th. And that all these customs came out of pagan religions. We were never told those kind of things. Now, here's something that I have been thinking about lately that I've been trying to lead up to here with this uh, little foundation I'm doing of how Yahweh has never accepted anything that was offered to a pagan deity. What I want you to know is that people in Christianity in particular don't even wonder why you don't read anywhere in the epistles of Peter, Paul, James, John, none of them, you don't read about it in Acts of the Apostles that they celebrated the birthday of Jesus Christ. You don't find it in there. If it's such an important holiday, why wasn't it practiced by the Apostles? Dennis, you cut out. Dennis, your uh, mic is cut out. He's trying to fix it, everybody. Well, I guess Satan doesn't want us to hear this. I was thinking the same thing. Me too.
My dad said that his mic went out on OBS and to put Carl Emler up. I'm going to have to have Carl. I'm going to have to have a talk with those people at OBS. They've been nothing but trouble. Mm. Uh, same thing to me. Um, I want to go back to uh, the second last scripture, I think Dennis called, which is um, Deuteronomy 624. Um, Linda, do you have that? Did, were you reading for him just before? Yeah, you got I, yeah I have it. All right, I want that and then the next scripture that he read. Okay. Uh, and Yahweh Elohim commanded us to do all these statutes to fear Yahweh our Elohim for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as it is at this day. And it shall be our righteousness if we observe to do all these commandments before Yahweh our Elohim as he hath commanded us. Now, this is the first time that Yahweh uh, defines for the people what his righteousness is. And this is the righteousness uh, of the law. Prior to this time, um, they didn't have a defined uh, uh, set of righteousness. It was within them. And the example uh, of that takes you all the way back to Abram when he goes into Egypt the first time, is afraid uh, that he will be killed because his wife is uh, desirable. And so uh, has her say she's his sister, which in, in a sense she was. Um, but um, Pharaoh, uh, takes her as is Abram knew he would and doesn't go under her but has her in his household and uh, Yahweh um, uh, plagues Pharaoh and I believe he made everybody sterile at that point in time when there were no children being born or something like that and um, and Yahweh uh, informs him of the situation. And so Pharaoh goes to uh, Abram and said, why have you done this thing to me? And um, so it was within the hearts and minds, uh, naturally so, uh, at that stage that um, you wouldn't take uh, another man's wife, unless that man was killed, was dead. <laughs> and that was what Abram was worried about. He already knew that, the, you know, that that's the way Pharaoh would have uh, come by Sarai there. And so uh, there were instinctual actions, uh, either social or whatever, that mankind uh, lived by uh, uh, prior to Yahweh Elohim visiting them with the knowledge of what his desire and uh, uh, ideas are. And this, uh, what happens in uh, uh, with Israel uh, coming up out of uh, the 
uh, Red Sea and getting this covenant is the defined will of Yahweh to a people that there is no question about it. And uh, Terry spent a good amount of time talking about uh, the uh, details of these feast days uh, unbeknownst to Israel while they were practicing these feast days, that those feast days marked the um, progression of Yahweh's purpose uh, incorporated in the law. And that's where Terry uh, was going. Uh, but, uh, you know, there was so much detail there. It's, it's hard to cover both the detail and the point. But he did make that point at the very end with the ingathering. In uh, that ingathering, we know that um, if someone would get that, when all things were under his feet, then he presented all things uh, to the Father. Do, does anyone know where that is? I know I'm um, uh, asking a lot from folks, but hopefully someone has an electric concordance and can look these things up. Ephesians 1.22. Thank you, Sasha. Either an electric concordance or a Sasha Rachmelevich. Um, So get that in Ephesians, please. Ephesians 1 and 22, uh, pick it up at 21, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the assembly, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. All right, that's not exactly what I want, but that'll that'll do because um, I, I wanted where he presented. First Corinthians fifteen twenty seven. Say first that again. Corinth I don't think, did you hear that, uh, Sharon? No, First Corinthians what? Fifteen twenty seven. Fifteen twenty seven. Fifteen and twenty seven. For he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifested he is accepted, which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that Yahweh may be all in all. Now that is the end of the purpose, the feast of the ingathering, gathering it back to the Father. Now, Moses, Israel, none of Israel knew that these feast days were designed in order that uh, there would be a time in the purpose where we would be able to understand the spiritual aspects and the reasons why. But the details are there. The description of the sacrifices are there. And uh, depending on how uh, uh, deep you get into these uh, manifestations and understand the spiritual principles behind it will be how much you can uh, gather about uh, the spiritual side of Yahweh's purpose because the spiritual aspects 
let's get Romans 119 and 20 real quick. I know, Linda, I've got you in Deuteronomy, and I'm going to go back to that, but I just want to make this point out of uh, uh, Romans 119 and 20. Romans 119, because that which may be known of Yahweh is manifest in them. Now, For that Yahweh which may be known of Yahweh is manifest in them, and that them are the children of Israel during the time uh, that uh, Yahweh had established his covenant, and I'll go all the way back to the covenant of circumcision, but I'm not going to have time to deal with that. But just be it known, that's when uh, Israel or uh, Abraham was given the promise that uh, uh, through uh, Isaac, who bears Jacob, who it becomes Israel, and we are the children of Israel, uh, which are spiritual, that were manifested by the children of Israel here in the wilderness of Sinai. And again, bringing back these feast days that that uh, uh, Terry got into, uh, that the, these are manifestations. Uh, the children of Israel, this whole story about uh, Israel, uh, taking it all the way back, and we can take it back to uh, Abram, Take it. We can take it back to Ur of Chaldees before he comes out of there. We can follow the purpose all the way down through because Moses had a vision at the top of the mountain that describes everything that we have in the book of Genesis. And the book of Genesis tells us the impetus behind uh, Abram coming up out of uh, Ur of Chaldees. We didn't have any of that knowledge back then. Uh, uh, we know that uh, uh, Abram was aware that he was uh, being uh, uh, um, addressed by and dealt with by whom he called El Shaddai eventually, uh, not initially, but eventually after every encounter with this being. And you read about these kinds of, uh, you know, people that would appear to him. You read about uh, 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 Sodom and Gomorrah and all these things are the workings of what uh, Abram and subsequently Abraham would have called El Shaddai, the almighty provider. And Yahweh Elohim had begun providing for Abram while he was in Ur of Chaldees and brought him out of Ur of Chaldees and worked with him all the way through uh, to the time that it was established that uh, this El Shaddai could give him the promise of the children of Israel and Canaan's land. Uh, still El Shaddai, uh, and the covenant of circumcision. And this is where you'll read, and we don't have time, so I'm just going to quote it. But um, uh, Abram uh, had been accounted by El Shaddai righteousness um, because uh, uh, Abram, uh, through the experience all the way down through of El Shaddai saying something to Abram and and not breaking his word, following through, following through, following through. Finally, uh, Abram, and it had to happen this way, Abram had to have enough strength through those experiences to follow through uh, and believe that uh, uh, he was going to have a son when he was 100 years old, the conception being when he was 99, and uh, I think Sarah was 90. Um, and so he believed that uh, because he had experience uh, by uh, Yahweh Elohim, 
Al Shaddai, uh, all the way down through. And those experiences that uh, Abram uh, had uh, caused him, listen to my wording again, those experiences caused Abraham to further uh, accept the impossible that he would have a son in his old age to a woman who was well past uh, 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 menopause. And that kind of belief uh, that he had was imbued within him by the experiences he had of, of conscious recognition that Yahweh or Al Shaddai was working with him. It wasn't a figment of his imagination like we have with Christmas and Easter, etc. These pagan uh, uh, holidays, etc., that Terry spoke about first uh, were uh, reasonable for the pagans to do in the sense that they had not ever been visited by Al Shaddai in any meaningful way and, and instructed even in a, a minimal way, the way that Abram was instructed. And so they were left on their own and all they had to be able to deal with was uh, 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 the heavens declare the glory of Yahweh and the firmament shows his handiwork. Now, they didn't know the heavens declared the glory of Yahweh and the firmament showed his handiwork. But what they did know was this, that the way the creation worked, it worked that way every single year. They could count on it every single year. And so they got so used to the operation of this repetitive purpose in the uh, creation that they generated familial uh, holidays for it. Uh, they became so familiar with it, they made holidays. And the holidays they knew, they would, whatever they decided to do, uh, you know, you'd have the Easter, uh, and then whatever they decided to do, you'd have the 25th, uh, the solstice, and then uh, this cycle would go on and on. They, there was nothing else they could do because they were not instructed. They did not have uh, information directly from Yahweh Elohim. Now, uh, uh, Abram did have those experiences, but with El Shaddai, and uh, I, I, I can't impress that enough. But uh, uh, now, in uh, 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 where we're reading in Deuteronomy, this is a concrete uh, instruction by a vision. Moses has gone 40 days and 40 nights, doesn't eat or drink or anything like that, and comes out with the whole book of Genesis, at least through two of these 40-day uh, visions up there. The world to this day does not know that Genesis came from a vision that Moses had at the top of Mount Sinai. They know that Moses saw the tabernacle because it says it in the 25th chapter of Exodus, but they don't know the six days of creation were shown to Moses and Moses put it uh, in Genesis. They called Genesis the first book of Moses, but it's still controversial to this day where Moses got that information. Was it passed down? Uh, where did he get this information from? They do not concretely know that Moses had a, a specific uh in a sense, panoramic vision uh, of the operation of the purpose of Yahweh, yet and still the uh, feast days that were uh, shown to Moses at the top of this mountain to be incorporated into the lives and the year, the entire year long from 
from April to April uh, for the, 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 the Israelites were uh, uh, a complicated way to uh, uh, prove out the, the purpose of Yahweh from uh, the beginning until the end. And that's what Terry was going into. So this righteousness that uh, Yahweh describes to Israel was specifically a righteousness that they would keep all the works of this law. And this law was placed in the tabernacle. We learn later through Yahweh himself that, oh, if there was such a heart in them, this law was not placed in their heart. And all this prefigures for us the necessity to understand the spiritual aspects of this covenant. And I, I'm not going to go back to Romans 119 to 20 and have it read because I've got like 12 minutes left here. And uh, so what happens is in Romans, Paul tells you that the invisible things of Yahweh from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. So these things that are made uh, are revealing invisible things about Yahweh. And the second covenant, the covenant that is prophesied in Jeremiah 31, 31 and Ezekiel 36 is an invisible covenant. Every aspect of it is not perceived or seen by man's eyes not understood by man uh, folding his hands with his fingers crunched between each other or folding his hands with his fingers pointed up and pointing up and looking up at the sky in prayer and getting down on your physical knees and praying in order to show forth humility and stuff like that. Those were all natural, visible things that Paul speaks about in uh, uh, Acts, the 17th chapter, that uh, Yahweh does not dwell in temples made with hands and does not worship with men's hands as though he needs anything. And Paul meant what he said because everything was about this new covenant is absolutely imperceptible with the uh, uh, ability that this physical body's been given to question uh, uh, the the world. And what I mean by question it is to see it with their eyes and to hear it physically with their ears, birds singing and animals crying, touch it with their hands, etc. Uh, that's the action of the physical body. Um, Yahweh, when he reveals or shows you something, that's an action of the spirit inhabiting your body, interacting with the spirit of Yahweh, if I can put it like that. And I'm not going to try to clean up all my by things that might confuse people as though I was saying there's two spirits. I, we all know better than that, but we know it's spirit witnessing to spirit by the time the Messiah uh, uh, comes at the, uh, on the day of Pentecost. And so uh, so I got Romans 119 and 20 to establish the invisibility, the impossibility of understanding anything at all about this covenant uh, unless uh, you are instructed directly by the Holy Spirit itself or or Yahshua, Yahweh Elohim, uh, making it known to you. You can't figure this out. You can't work up on it. You can't logically deduce it. As a matter of fact, uh, people can come into class uh, and, uh, and into a class that you're at and sit right next to you and hear exactly the same uh, lecture and hear the names and they'll agree with the names. Yes, I see that. I see it in Britannica. I see there's no J. Makes perfect sense to me. I see you breathe the name and on and on and on. But then turn around and say, I understand all that, but God is not that uh, so uh, picky that he would make you uh, 
want to use that name. It doesn't really matter what you call him. He knows what you're thinking. They'll agree with all the data, but they will not see the spiritual implication behind it because that takes an extra experience of the spirit in order to appreciate the information that we provide, including all the information that Terry covered with those uh, uh, feast days, et cetera. So what we're dealing with now is the idea that there is truth uh, out there. Um, uh, there's a place in, I, I think it's, I think it's in the scripture reading now that I think of it, that you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Is that in yeah. John 8? Let me just see. Uh, yeah, it's 32. What is it? 8.32. Go ahead if you got that right real quick. And you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you, shall make you free. Shall make you free. This truth is what's going to do it. And in a type, in this creation, if you know facts about this creation, you will be successful in uh, getting by without being fooled by someone who's deceiving you. You won't give your money over to a scheme of some kind. Uh, you won't uh, take, if you know the facts behind something from a medical standpoint, you won't be uh, 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 deceived by a shyster medical practice person. Uh, the truth makes you free from a physical standpoint to navigate in this world without being uh, compromised to the best extent that it can. But this truth that he's talking about, Yahshua said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And this tabernacle pattern and Yahshua are the same because this tabernacle pattern in the wilderness of Sinai represents uh, Yahshua, the Messiah, who appeared uh, from the loins of the Virgin Mary and was the sacrifice for mankind. As this tabernacle laid on the earth here in the wilderness of Sinai, Yahshua laid his body down in the flesh uh, during that time he's come to fulfill those co that, that covenant. And that tabernacle uh, eventually uh, goes into Canaan's land, carried into Canaan's land, which represents uh, Yahshua the Messiah, in, in a sense, um, going uh, uh, in the spirit uh, into that uh, tomb. They took the body and put it in the tomb, but they never found the body again because that tabernacle in Canaan's land went into the temple, the, the, not the... Uh, linen and stuff, but the vessels, etc. Not only the vessels, which would be the anatomy, but the operation of the priests in the temple uh, uh, and the feast days being the same, which would be uh, the physiology. And that went into the, the temple, the permanent structure. And so we find that Yahshua laid down his life, that the glorious uh, 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 revelation of Yahweh manifest by the temple might be made in the spirit. And, and not in the flesh. So now uh, go to the, Linda, if you can remember the scripture uh, that Dennis got after he got this one in um, uh, Deuteronomy yeah, 6. I believe you want 10 and 12 of Deuteronomy. Go for and it, I'll know. And now Israel, what doth Yahweh thy Elohim require of thee? Now, but this is just what I wanted because this, he goes, now what does he require? He's already giving him all the things he requires about the, the sacrifices, et cetera, in very painful detail 
Uh, and he turns around and says, now, what does Yahweh Elohim require of you? Go ahead. But to fear Yahweh thy Elohim, to walk in all his ways and to love him and to serve Yahweh thy Elohim with all thy heart and with all thy soul. To keep the commandments. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, finish it off, Linda. To keep the commandments of Yahweh and his statutes, which I command thee this day for thy good. Now, these commandments that he commanded, they were for their good, for their good. And it just seemed onerous to them uh, because they kept breaking them. But this is a reference to the principle of the new covenant. Read that whole section again that you just read, Linda. And now, Israel, what doth Yahweh thy Elohim require of thee? But to fear Yahweh thy Elohim, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, and to serve Yahweh thy Elohim with all thy heart and with all thy soul. Now, go over and get these two commandments uh, are the whole law and prophets combined. Boy, I slaughtered that. The law and the prophets. Yeah, it goes, the, the commandment of love, to love Yahweh your Elohim with your whole heart. And love your neighbor. Uh, All these things hinge on. Yeah, there you go. Hinge? Is it hinge? I'll do hinge. <laughs> Matthew 22 and 37 or 8. You have it, Gail? Yes. Read it. Um, 36. Master, what? which is the great commandment of the law? And Yahshua answered unto him, Thou shalt love Yahweh thy Elohim with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. The second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So therein lies the, 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 the whole reason why uh, Israel went through what they did, experiencing the word of Yahweh down through the time of, right from the time of Abram coming out of Ur of Chaldee, actually that this experience of the, the love that Yahweh has for his chosen, that he would bless them uh, as long as they recognized uh, who he was. And when you are, don't recognize who he is, as the, the Gentiles did, then you'll make up your own, your own uh, laws, your own feast days, your own holidays. But when Yahweh Elohim actually appears to you, that is to say, you recognize who you're dealing with. When that person sat next to you in the chair and they agreed with the name Yahweh and they agreed with the name Yahshua, they saw it out of Encyclopedia Britannica and no J, no Jesus and everything. Yahweh Elohim had not appeared to them. They were just from a carnal, literal a logical standpoint were reasonable within themselves, read what they read in a dictionary and said, the dictionary is truer than me. I didn't know the name that's telling me that, so I know that's the name. But the dictionary doesn't tell them that you need to use this name and be true to the truth. You, in a sense, made that choice on your own. And the truth will set you free. And that truth is Yahshua in your heart. Uh, in mind, causing you to know where these things came from, that is to say, from the spirit and not from the flesh, to know that it is the operation of Yahweh's purpose all the way down through. And we are convinced in our heart of that 
because the details never deviate from that answer, never deviate from the operation of the pattern as uh, Terry showed with those feast days, crazy feast days. You wouldn't know what they were doing with all that stuff. And this seven days here and four days there, and then this and in gathering and out gathering and all the rest, you wouldn't know what to do with it if you didn't know the way that Yahweh had declared the end from the beginning in ancient times of things that are not yet done, saying his, uh, his purpose or my will uh, shall stand and he will do all of his pleasure. And we follow it with Adam coming out of the garden uh, from the love of his, for the love of his bride and therefore causing her to live uh, uh, by his protecting her, bringing forth children. And the whole purpose unfolds from that point on to the culmination when he gathers that family together and uh, the ingathering. So uh, I hope I did some justice for that in the time that I had. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Emler and Dr. Volpe. And we apologize for the technical issues on Dr. Volpe's end. We'd like to thank everybody for joining us on our Zoom call. And we'd also like to thank those who have viewed us on YouTube. We hold our Zoom class every Saturday from 4 to 6 p.m. Pacific time. At this time, I'd like to ask the class to stay muted until the live stream has ended. We'll now be dismissed by the doxology, which is taken from the last two verses of the book of Jude. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise Elohim, our Savior, through Yahshua the Messiah, our Sovereign, belong glory and majesty, dominion and power, both before all time and now and ever. Let us all say, Hallelujah. Hallelujah.